Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko, and Nito Chamani. In our top stories when Africa rise and shine at the Sawah, former South Africa's President Thabo Mbeki condemns recent attacks on foreigners. US President Donald Trump prepares for his first address to Congress and concerns over humanitarian situation in the Iraqi city of Mosul. In economics news, South African petrochemicals firm Sasol finds oil in Mozambique and in sports news, South Africa beat Cameroon in their opening match of the under-20 Africa Cup of Nations. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. The South African Human Rights Commission has come out against the recent xenophobic attacks in the country. The commission held an emergency stakeholder meeting in light of the recent attacks. 100 people were arrested in the capital Pretoria last week following a clash between local and foreign nationals. The violence has since spread to Johannesburg. South African Human Rights Commission's Gail Smith. The South African Human Rights Commission is very concerned about the allegations of xenophobia and the recent events that have unfolded, and we have expressed our dissatisfaction publicly with it. We are very concerned about it. So the intention of today's stakeholder engagement was just pull together all people who are concerned with what is being termed xenophobic violence, try to get an understanding of where everyone is with respect to the issue and to see how we can chart a way forward. The government of Lesotho has failed to present its budget estimates for 2017-2018. The submit opposition demands for a motion of no confidence in the Prime Minister. The Speaker announced on Friday when the House reopened that the budget would be tabled, but the opposition vowed it would not allow any business before a looming vote of no confidence. Lesotho's government is believed to control only 37 of the 120 seats in Parliament. Ntakwanagatane reports from the capital, Maseru. The Lesotho opposition is victorious. Its strategy to prevent the government from tabling the budget speech has succeeded, albeit temporarily. Reform Congress of Lesotho leader Kike Zoranzo reminded the Speaker that in 2012 when the Prime Minister's Democratic Congress took over power in Parliament, she counted the MPs that were crossing the floor and declared the majority on the spot. Ranzo says that she should do the same now. The Speaker tried to convince the opposition that the tabling of the budget is simply a proposal, but the opposition said that would give the government power to continue with the estimates for three months without approval as provided in the constitution and they would not allow that alliance of democrats leader 
Munyane Muleleki said there is no point allowing a government that he says has 37 of 120 seats to present the budget that the opposition will oppose anyway. After a brief recess, the Speaker agenda the House. United Nations forces used helico- attack helicopters to subdue rebels in the Central African Republic. The UN spokesperson Stefan Dujaric says about 40 heavily armed rebels were just a few kilometers away from the town of Bambare. Dujaric says the peacekeeping mission intervened by air to stop the progression of the armed elements of the group known by its French acronym FPRC. Three members of the FPRC were apprehended by the UN mission. The Central African Republic's judicial authorities will proceed to interrogate them regarding their presence around the city with support of the UN mission. Seven members of the coalition were also wounded the operation and one died. The UN mission once again calls for an immediate cessation of hostilities and reiterates its determination to use all means authorized by the Security Council to prevent fighting in Bambari. United States President Donald Trump will deliver his first address as Commander-in-Chief to a joint sitting of Congress in Washington today. The prime time address is expected to be a further victory lap for the unexpected winner of last year's election in a country divided and a president known for being unpredictable. This could be a joint sitting like no other. And intellectual historian at Hale University, Professor Daniel Magazina, believes that Democrats and how they react will also attract much scrutiny. Typically, presidents, this is their moment when they get to go and appeal and have the podium to themselves and appeal to a, na- a national audience, as well as to you know, the assembled Congress, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Supreme Court, everyone is there. The thing that makes Donald Trump somewhat unpredictable is that he imagines himself already to do that because he has his, his Twitter, he has his various other means of reaching out to his, his base and his followers. And so it's unclear whether this moment is as important in terms of communication for him as it was for others. And finally, the World Health Organization is scaling up its response to the drought-affected areas of Somalia, this in order to provide what it describes as critical health services for around 1.5 million people. Matthew Wells reports. WHO said it needed $10 million urgently as part of the UN appeal for Somalia covering the first six months of this year. Acute drought in many parts of the country has reduced clean water sources and led to around 363,000 children becoming acutely malnourished. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anna. It's 7 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this the 28th of February in 2017. Now, starting off the show today, let's go back in time to today in 2008 when the South African national, national football team Bafana Bafana lost 2-0 against their Egyptian opponents in the final of the Africa Cup of Nations staged in Burkina Faso. 
A top story, the denial of human rights is a disease which is spreading north, south, east and west. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said on Monday, addressing the Human Rights Council in Geneva, the UN chief said that its member states could be part of the cure by upholding the rights of all people and all states. Guterres also explained his personal connection to human rights, having grown up under the under Portugal's Salazar dictatorship. Daniel Johnson has more. Human rights isn't some abstract principle that's discussed in the corridors of power, Antonio Guterres told the Human Rights Council in Geneva. On the opening day of a new four-week session, the UN chief expressed alarm at how people's rights are trampled on increasingly around the world. This regard for human rights is a disease, and it is a disease that is spreading north, south, east and west. And the Human Rights Council must be part of the cure. Human rights are an intrinsic part of all that we do and all that we are. And so we must speak up for human rights in an impartial way without double standards. Having lived under the dictatorship of Portugal's Antonio Salazar, the UN chief explained that he was 24 before he knew what democracy was. Denying his compatriots their human rights had oppressed and impoverished many of them, resulting in a mass exodus, he said. The dictatorship also brought bloody civil war to other countries, a reference to Portugal's former colonies in Africa. Today, in a more dangerous, more chaotic world, addressing the root causes of conflict is key, the UN chief told the Human Rights Council. On so many issues, he continued, including refugees, the challenge now is not so much sharing the burden as sharing the responsibility. Taking responsibility for sexual exploitation and abuse committed under the UN flag is also something that Antonio Guterres told member states he would take action on soon with ambitious new steps to end such crimes. He also called on member states to turn back efforts to reinstate capital punishment and torture, a cowardly and shameful practice for every country that uses it, he said. That message was echoed by High Commissioner for Human Rights, Zaid Rad al-Hussein. At the top of his speech was another one, that human rights was written into the UN Charter in the aftermath of the Second World War because it was recognised that without it, peace and development can't happen. Human rights was placed in the preamble of the UN Charter, not as the last or a third pillar or as some literary flourish. It was there, it came first, human rights was viewed as the necessary starting condition because on the 26th of June 1945, the day of the Charter's signing, killing on a scale hitherto unknown to humans had only just come to an end. As the 34th session of the Council got underway in Geneva, the UN High Commissioner warned of the dangers of taking human rights for granted. It's like breathing air, Zaid said. We don't think several thousand times a day about the need for oxygen, even though our existence depends on it. His words were aimed at what he called reckless political profiteers who threatened the international system of checks and balances put in place since the last world war. Referring to the popular marches held in January in the United States and elsewhere around the world, Zaid said he was proud of his staff who took part, adding that he and others would not sit idly by when there was so much to lose. Daniel Johnson, United Nations, Geneva.
Recent xenophobic-related attacks have been largely criticized. The South African Human Rights Commission held an emergency stakeholder meeting in light of the recent attacks and threats against foreign nationals. There has been attacks on foreign nationals and foreign-owned businesses in Pretoria, which later spread to Johannesburg. Horisani Sitole has more. The South African Human Rights Commission held a close session with several NGOs and representatives from government to try to come up with a solution to the recent attacks. The Commission's Gail Smith. The South African Human Rights Commission is very concerned about the allegations of xenophobia and the recent events that have unfolded, and we have expressed our dissatisfaction publicly with it. We are very concerned about it. So the intention of today's stakeholder engagement was just pull together all people who are concerned with what is being termed xenophobic violence, try to get an understanding of where everyone is with respect to the issue and to see how we can chart a way forward. Leaders such as the Zulu King Goodwill Zulitini and Jobek Mayor Heman Mashaba have come under fire from some of the speakers for statements they made relating to foreign nationals. Africa Diaspora Forum spokesperson Emeka Johnson elaborates. We'll give the blame to powerful politicians who make restless statements. We give the blame to the government because there were prior signals to this. We warned against it. We saw it snowballing. We give the blame to criminality. Criminals have hijacked probably the good intention of some few. And um, we generally blame lack of knowledge. Last Friday, over 100 people were arrested in Pretoria following clashes between locals and foreign nationals. There's been also a number of attacks and looting of shops in GP's town in Johannesburg on Sunday night. During his inauguration, as the Chancellor of the University of South Africa, former President Tabombegi spoke out against xenophobia. All of us know that our country faces many socio-economic challenges, such as poverty and unemployment. Not even one of these problems can or will be solved by attacking the fellow Africans who have joined us as migrants. And those who organize and participate in these attacks, which must stop, should know that there is absolutely nothing revolutionary or progressive or patriotic or acceptable or of service to the people in what are in fact criminal activities. Law enforcement personnel continue to be on high alert in Johannesburg to contain any possible xenophobic attacks or related incidents. It's 8.14 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A former South African president, Thabo Mbeki, says higher education has a critical role to play in realizing the total rebirth of Africa, the African Renaissance. Mbeki said this after being inaugurated as Chancellor of the University of South Africa. UNISA says the decision was influenced by his outstanding leadership credentials and have described him as a proponent of the African Renaissance in its 21st century. Mbeki succeeded Nelson Mandela as head of state in 1999 and resigned in 2008. Tseboi Ganing filed this report. A somber moment to honor one of the most distinguished African. Former President Tabumbiki entered the packed ZK Matthews Hall with his wife Zanele on his side. It is now my privilege to announce that we are now invested with the authority, the rights and privileges connected with the office of the Chancellor of the University of South Africa. 
The big moment came when Becky was officially inaugurated as UNISA's chancellor. In his acceptance speech, Becky reflected on a number of socio-economic challenges facing the country. The former president condemned recent attacks on migrants. And all of us know that our country faces many socio-economic challenges, such as poverty and unemployment. Not even one of these problems can or will be solved by attacking the fellow Africans who have joined us as migrants. And those who organize and participate in these attacks, which must stop, should know that there is absolutely nothing revolutionary or progressive or patriotic or acceptable or of service to the people in what are in fact criminal activities. <laughs> Becky has also denounced the culture of violent protests that have engulfed the country. He singled out the FISTMA fall campaign and other service delivery protests which often result in the destruction of property. The student movement and our society as a whole must decisively turn their backs on the forms of protests rooted in the logic of cutting off one's nose to spite one's face, as illustrated by a plethora of incidents in which we burn down clinics to demand better health care, or destroy lecture rooms because we want free education, or lay whole schools to ruin because we do not like a proposed municipal or provincial boundary. UNISA's Isimbeki's appointment as Chancellor will help promote the university's objective of repositioning itself as an African university. However, the former president has challenged the continent's intelligentsia to contribute towards knowledge production and innovation. That the African university should encourage students to be thinkers and doers rather than accumulators of facts and receive knowledge is very important because it speaks to the challenge for our universities to educate the change agents, the producers of new knowledge which Africa needs. And as educators among us know, the very concept to be educated, as it applies to university graduates, surely means the acquisition of the vital capacity rationally to question established truths, rather than being merely accumulators of facts. There were also fond moments Higher Education Minister Blin Zimande extended an olive branch to Mbeki. Zimande was amongst those who played a key role in the ANC recalling Mbeki in 2008, forcing him to resign before the end of his term. Zimande took to the podium to praise Mbeki's intellectual prowess. Despite whatever differences we might have had, since I've known you from 1986 in Sweden, in Bormesvik, I want to say without fear of contradiction that you are one of the greatest intellectuals produced by our movement. Not only by our movement, but by our country and by our continent. Also, one thing I must confess that I have admired in you is your stamina. Biggie takes over the chancellorship of the University of South Africa from Justice Bennett Mwepe who was at the helm of the institution for 15 years. Tsepo Iganeng in Pretoria. Now calls for the no violence against foreigners in the country have continued from all sectors. Why has the violence continued from Pretoria, from Rosettenville in Johannesburg, 
it seems to be moving from town to town or places to places. Um, yesterday we saw violent scenes taking place in Jeppe's town, Johannesburg. Why is this violence not coming to an end? Give us your feedback and your thoughts on this issue. Send us a WhatsApp message on 277 277- Six three hundred double three two seven. That's uh, two seven seven six three hundred double three two seven. Or give us a call on two seven eight three nine one three. 3000 and leave your message you can also email us at info at channelafrica.org.za or send an sms on 277-969-57930 or get a hold of us on twitter at rise shine africa or at channel africa one why has the violence against foreigners in South Africa continued after calls from all sectors within government, business and local communities calling for an end to the violence? Give us your thoughts. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. And I am Diana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Let's go back in time to today in 1959. United Arab Republic and Britain agree on a settlement following the Suez crisis. That was today in history in the year 1959. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.22 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. United States President Donald Trump will deliver his first address as Commander-in-Chief to a joint sitting of Congress in Washington later tonight. A primetime address is expected to be a further victory lap for the annex expected winner of last year's election amidst a rancorous political climate in Washington that has seen millions of people across the country rise up in defiance of this president's agenda. Analysts believe that while the occasion lends itself to reaching across the aisle to those legislators and their supporters that did not support his candidacy, the president is likely to play to his base of supporters that ensured his victory last November. Sharon Bryce-Peace reports. He's the consummate outsider, upending the political establishment in both parties to become the 45th President of the United States. And in a prime time setting with millions expected to watch, this 
will be right up his alley as Professor Daniel Magazina, an intellectual historian at Yale University, explains. It's this very symbolic and ritualized thing where there's a particular person who's charged with announcing the President of the United States and typically he's met with a tremendous ovation. Um, and it's, I mean, it's an ultimate moment of victory, I'd imagine, for Donald Trump personally, someone who is a self-professed outsider now arriving at the halls of Congress in, as a conquering hero, as it were. Um, whether he'll be met as one, he will be by at least slightly more than half of those in attendance, but it's you know, unclear how the others will respond. While this is not called a State of the Union so soon after President's election, it does offer the incumbent an opportunity to lay out his agenda, one likely to play to his base, issues of national and border security, repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act, tax reform and infrastructure spending. Typically, presidents, this is their moment when they get to go and appeal and have the podium to themselves and appeal to a, na a national audience as well as to you know, the assembled Congress, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Supreme Court, everyone is there. The thing that makes Donald Trump somewhat unpredictable is that he imagines himself already to do that because he has his, his Twitter, he has his various other means of reaching out to his, his base and his followers. And so it's unclear whether this moment is as important in terms of communication for him as it was for others. In a country divided and a president known for being unpredictable, this could be a joint sitting like no other. And while eyes will be focused on this president's performance, Professor Magaziner believes that Democrats and how they react will also attract much scrutiny. The Democrats are very aware of the fact that their base is agitated and that the base is going to hold them to account if ever they are seen as compromising with Donald Trump. So if there are Democrats who stand up and support certain measures that he puts forward, those names will be written down somewhere. And I think Democrats are aware of that and I think they're already familiar with that, that dynamic because that was how Republicans acted during Obama's various states of the union. There was this sense where Republican, Republicans knew that Tea Party activists were watching them and that Tea Party activists were keeping track of whether or not they applauded the president. For many months now, analysts have tried to predict whether Donald Trump would pivot to what they describe as a more presidential tone. But over a month into his presidency, all bets are off that it might actually happen tonight. The outreach to Democrats has been minimal attacks on the media unprecedented, and executive actions that have prompted a grassroots movement across the United States. That President Trump will shore up his base in what he says tonight seems more likely than not. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. Increased fighting in western Mosul in Iraq is making it difficult for people to leave their homes while the price of food rises as availability decreases. That information comes from the World Food Program, which reports that more than 750,000 people there are living in dire conditions. Iraqi forces and their allies are fighting to liberate western Mosul from the extremist group ISIL, also known as Daesh. WFP is ready to supply food for the 770,000 people living in the area and has already supplied food for 6,000 people who have fled villages to the south of the city. Basma Bogol asked WFP spokesperson Dina al Kasabi about the situation. The situation, as we know, is, is quite concerning and that is why we issued this release. 
uh, raising concern about the situation. Unfortunately, access to reliable information about exactly the conditions inside Western Mosul are limited. But our monitoring team and our partners have been in touch with a number of families inside the city uh, through telephone interviews. And the, the reports that we're hearing from families inside are very concerning. People are saying that food is unaffordable, that they cannot access food, and many people are reporting that they're uh, very afraid of the situation and therefore afraid to go outside their homes and search for food. That also, uh, in addition to that, um, many people are saying that the cost of food, since since the food is not entering and exiting uh, Western Mosul, the cost of food that's actually there is increasing. So in that case, it's becoming too expensive for many families. And for this reason, we are extremely concerned. So what are you doing in that regard? Uh, well, right now, the World Food Program is supporting all people who are fleeing Western Mosul. So whenever they reach areas where we can access them uh, safely, uh, including Hamam al-Ali, Qayyara, uh, and Hajj Ali camp, um, we are providing them with ready-to-eat food as soon as they arrive. So this includes basically food rations with date, biscuits, um, canned beans, canned meat. So it's food that doesn't need to be cooked. And so far, we have assisted 6,000 people who have managed to flee from Western Mosul. Um, in addition, as you know, there has been an ongoing um, conflict in Eastern Mosul for several months now. And we have now assisted uh, up almost a million people who have fled Eastern Mosul. So the World Food Program is prepared to meet the needs of everybody who flees Western Mosul as long as we have Uh, safe access to them and when they reach safe places. Tell me about the ch- tell me about the challenges in facing those numbers of people fleeing Western Mosul. Well, the challenges are basically access and security. At the World Food Program, we have over 50 years of experience in responding to emergency uh, food needs. So for us, the scale of the problem is not uh, is not an issue. It's actually having safe access to these people where we can ensure that we can reach them with food in a timely manner uh, without putting them in danger and without putting our own staff and our own partners in danger. Do you like to add anything else? The World Food Program is appealing to all parties of the conflict Uh, to facilitate immediate and unimpeded humanitarian access so that we can reach all Iraqis who are in need of assistance immediately. That was WFP spokesperson Diana al Kasabi speaking to UN Radio's Basma Bogol. It's 8.30 and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. In the headlines, the South African Human Rights Commission comes out against the recent xenophobic attacks in the country. The government of Lesotho has failed to present its budget estimates for 2017-2018 amid opposition demands for a motion of no confidence in the Prime Minister. And head of the EU's border agency Frontex has criticized charities that rescue migrants of Libya arguing they encourage the traffickers who profit from the dangerous Mediterranean crossings. Those are the stories making headlines. It's 8.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Today we ask you... 
with calls for no violence against foreigners and xenophobic attacks continuing um, from all sectors. Why has the violence not ended? Give us your feedback and your thoughts on this issue. Send us an SMS on WhatsApp to 2776 300 That's 277 Or give us a call on 2783913 leaving your message. You can also email us at info at channelafrica.org.za or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or get a hold of us on Twitter at RiseShineAfrica or at ChannelAfrica1. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. War museums will continue to predominate, but peace museums can give daylight to stories that are often hidden. An expert on genocide says Dr. Joyce Apsel is the president of the Institute for the Study of Genocide, as well as a clinical professor at New York University and the International Network of Museums for Peace Representatives to the United Nations. She was at UN headquarters for a panel discussion on the role of art, music and museums in creating cultures of peace. Following the discussion, Dr. Absell spoke with UN Radio's Lucy Dean about the importance of peace in the world today. Peace is more than the absence of war. We're also talking about positive peace, both individually, communally, and uh, we live in a world uh, that has, we know, many, many conflicts, and so peace obviously more than ever, is needed. Do you think there's a certain romance people see in war? And if there is, how do we go about dispelling that notion? Of course, there's a tremendous attraction, both culturally and within societies, of the heroic and the mythos of war and its meaning, particularly its meaning for males, but for for societies of domination. And there are several different ways. One way is to try to end wars through peacekeeping. Another is to provide alternative ways of imagining peace. If one knows the history, for example, of the universal peace symbol, uh, that it came about through Gerald Holtham, who was an activist, being in such pain at a protest about the proliferation of nuclear arms that he drew an image for a poster of himself in a Christ-like figure and holding up a banner. And then from that, this was retooled and reimagined. And when he first said, let's use that in our protest, people said, it's never going to go anywhere. And of course, it became a universal symbol. People also said, why don't you copyright it? And he said, no, I don't want to copyright it. I want it for humanity. So there are stories like that, stories people just generally don't know that provide alternative ways of thinking about how human beings live their lives and what they're willing to dedicate their lives to. Is that a big part of what 
these museums are about, providing that alternate story? Uh, well, war museums predominate, will continue to predominate. History museums that glorify war and nationalism will continue to predominate, right? But what peace museums do is they may represent aspects of past conflicts, certainly that's there in some of them, but they also provide the untold stories, and there are many of them, of peoples, indigenous peoples, of of environmental impact and issues, of stories that have not been given generally daylight in more traditional settings. So they provide an an alternative to look, to listen, to hear about different different side of history. Why is war glorified and not peace? One of the things that I have long argued is that we have to create knowledge about language and history of peace. And war is glorified because, of course, war is situated in sites of power. And so the connection between that and history has been inextricably linked. And part of what peace museums attempt to do is to create an alternative discourse, a discourse of caring, a discourse of possibility, a discourse of resistance to war and to violence. Of course, peace museums recognize well that they are speaking in in an alternative voice, but that is one of their contributions to educate young people or any of their audiences. That was Dr. Joyce Apsel, President of the Institute for the Study of Genocide, speaking to UN Radio's Lucy Dean in New York. Gaming experts are joining representatives from government and the private sector, as well as policymakers, activists and students for what's being billed as the world's first playable policy conference. The Global Festival of Ideas for Sustainable Development, taking place in Bonn, Germany, seeks to provoke new thinking for a better world. Some 1,000 participants will be using a mobile app to collaborate on policies to achieve the sustainable development goals in a hypothetical country. The 17 SDGs aim to create a more just and equitable world by 2030, including an end to extreme poverty and quality education for all. Christina Silveira spoke to Mitchell Toomey, director of the UN SDG campaign ahead of Wednesday's opening session. So this global festival of ideas emerged as a concept of what if we created a very open space that was a little bit complicated, like the SDGs are, that kind of brings together lots of communities, proposes lots of interesting ideas related to sustainable development, and tries to let the crowd decide what happens next. You know, the whole concept is uh, taken from the great experience that the UN was able to participate in in the design of the sustainable development goals. The concept was, let's ask everybody what should be in the next agenda. By opening lots of different channels, including the My World Survey and the World We Want consultations and so on, over 10 million people eventually became involved in that process. And that activated lots of entrepreneurial social innovators and others who found that there was a real willingness by the process to invite them in. So now we're taking that same idea of openness and convening and bringing people together to talk about the ways that they're already making progress on these goals. An app has been developed so anyone can play the conference. Can you tell us what does this mean and what does it look like? 
Well, you know, we come at these things from two angles. We have to be very serious about tackling big development challenges, but we have to do so by being engaging and uh, approachable. Uh, we have to make the issue something that is not intimidating uh, and doesn't remain in the kind of the only the policy domain, but actually people feel that they can take part in this. And so we were looking at ways to do that, and our great partners, uh, the Overseas Development Institute from the U.K. and uh, also our U.N. partners, World Food Program and, and others uh, organizing this, came together and brainstormed this really interesting idea to create a game, an app that allows people to collaborate and, you know, do the SDGs for a hypothetical country. It relies on people coming together, uh, sharing what they know, trading policies, trading advice, collaborating and bringing good ideas to a crescendo by getting enough people to think about them and, and to support them at the same time. So the game's goal is to provide uh, a way to deploy policies, uh, but also to do campaigning around that, to, to walk around the event and make sure that others are supporting the policies that you are. Uh, and those who do that the best will have the best scores. Can anyone play? Absolutely. During the conference, we are going to have a kind of a, a special exercise for those who are there live. But this is an app that you can download at any time. It's called 2030 Hive Mind, H-I-V-E, like a, the idea of bees working together was the inspiration. But we have big plans for this game. It's not just for this event. We are going to kind of use this event to test it out for the first time. But we feel it's a great way to approach the SDGs. It's called gamification or game theory in different corners. But when you have lots of players and lots of possible outcomes. The only way to really make it work is to be transparent and work together and find novel collaborations. And so we feel that this game, like other products and utilities that our campaign develops, is going to be used, optimized with a group like this, and then put out for everyone to use in their own ways, in their own communities, because that's really the way that this SDG agenda is going to get tackled locally by using good ideas. Do you expect to be able to draw any conclusions from the game itself in terms of policy implementation or collaboration or spending patterns? We have to be modest in our expectations. This is a first effort in this area. We've had a lot of great kind of offline uh, simulations of these types of scenarios uh, that we're, we're building from. So it's not kind of a, a new invention. It's, a, it's bringing a lot of good ideas into the digital and kind of mobile app space. But we expect it to be very interesting as a way to get a sense for what a group of people are thinking. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be representative of the best practices for everybody. But when you get the right group together, anytime anyone has a large group that are working on the SDGs together, by undertaking this game, not only do you have something that's a kind of a rewarding, interesting activity for these people to participate in, it also generates an enormous amount of interesting data. You know, what kind of policies, what, what people from these different segments, from private sector, from the public sector, which policies are they gravitating towards? You know, which ones are they supporting? It'll be anonymous and it'll be something that we can just look at as a curiosity. But that's the kind of things that we need as a campaign, as an organization that's trying to figure out how to find the combination of things that we can do to actually achieve these dramatic goals. And we have to be honest that it's going to take a lot of iterations, a lot of experiments, but this is our first big one. Why do you think this global festival of ideas is so important? Well, we're in a time of dramatic change. We're questioning narratives. Uh, countries are looking at all kinds of factors that are surprising them, where things that they thought they could take for granted were now uh, not there, or the, the story that they were being told about how things were going to go was not playing out in the way that they expected. That's opened up a lot of chaos, a lot of uncertainty. But in any time like that, there's also an opportunity for dramatic improvement and dramatic uh, betterment of people's conditions. By questioning ideas, by questioning assumptions, you start to open up a new space for thinking of solutions. And I think that we, we have to be you know, careful and not over-promise on what this kind of a gathering could do. But what we want to do is open up a dialogue about how can this moment in human history be used as a platform to, to go in 
new directions and, and how can that be done with local control? You know, we feel that the globalization versus local uh, affairs, th this is a, a dramatic push and pull. And I think that, you know, what's being missed in some of the conversations is that all these technologies and things actually allow for a kind of a resettling of local control. You know, you can actually do a lot of the things in your own community that you don't have to rely on big institutions to support you on. People are just realizing that. Young people are realizing that. It's changing how they learn. It's changing how they do many of the most important things in their lives. It hasn't really changed government yet, though. And I think that that's what we're starting to see is this sense that we have a new set of uh, realities. We have a new starting point. Um, we need to kind of accelerate that thinking in the public sector and where the biggest development impacts can be attained. That was Mitchell Toomey, director of the UN SDG campaign, speaking to UN Radio's Christina Silviero. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ngatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. A very good morning. My name is Tabi Solohoko with the news. South Africa's petrochemicals group Cecil has found oil in wells off Mozambique and aims to bring the fossil fuel to production for the first time in the Southern African nation. Oil production will raise the hydrocarbon profile of Mozambique, an impoverished nation in the throes of a financial and debt crisis. The country has vast and tapped offshore gas reserves and inland coal deposits rather. Cecil earlier said that four of the 12 planned wells had been drilled and the results were surprising. Workers at Sepaku Cements MCC construction at Lichtenberg in South Africa's northwest province have downed tools over retrenchment and unbearable working conditions. Hundreds are reported to be affected by the move. Workers' representative Lobohan Dadinyane says that they intend to continue with the strike action until their demands Ahmed. We don't know how far we are, how far is the company about this one because now, as you are, as I'm saying now, we are all south, we are on strike, and the company have recruited people from, from different sides. So that means that the commitment that Sepaku is got with our community is not being guaranteed that everyone will develop as an agreement that be done with the community. Tunisia is likely to sell stakes in three state-owned banks this year and cut up to 10,000 public sector jobs. This is part of reforms demanded by the International Monetary Fund, which has postponed the payment of the second tranche of a loan. Six years after its 2011 pro-democracy uprising, Tunisia is struggling to make an economic progress. 
Last June, the IMF released the first tranche of a loan worth 320 million US dollars. Various organizations want Malawian farmers to regard farming as business. This because Malawi's economy is still agro-based. The farmers say in order for the country to uphold agro-processing methods, the government will have to invest properly and meet international standards. Fidelity Investments has cut the price of traders of trades for stocks and exchange-traded funds by 38% for the retail brokerage clients. Boston-based Fidelity's price reduction to $4.95 US from the previous commission of $7.95 a trade will likely put pressure on the rest of the US brokerage industry. Fidelity's price offers a discount of more than 50% when compared to some rivals. Fidelity says... It has also reduced option pricing to $0.65 per contract. The US dollar, 1294 in South Africa, 1024 in Botswana, 950 in Zambia. 8-0 to the British bar, 9-4 to the euro. Gold, $1,252. Platinum, $1,029 an ounce. Brand crude, $56.10 a barrel. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Up next, our sports update with Neto Chimani. Thank you, Lulu, and a very good morning to you all, sport fans. Starting off with football news. The South African national under-20 men's team Amajita got their 2017 Africa Cup of Nations AFCON under-20 tournament off to a good start, beating Cameroon 3-1 in a Group B game played at the Levi Mwanawasa Stadium in Indola, Zambia last night. The young Indomitable Lions drew first blood in the 14th minute, but Amajita replied within two minutes through a well-struck free kick from Ludasing. The Portuguese-based striker went on to complete a hat-trick in what was a memorable night for Tabosinong and his boys. It was an easy game for Amajita and Sinong says their tactical ability over physical strength of the op- opponents conquered. Firstly maybe let's acknowledge Cameroon I believe Cameroon was a very good team and they displayed good intensity for the whole 90 minutes so I must say we won against a very good team and yes we, 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 we played very well uh, we worked very hard but we relied more on our technical speed because our players are highly technical, they use the pace properly just behind the Cameroonian defense. But I must confess that we won the match because we applied our tactics very well and also the players concentrated very well. But we won against a very good team and I still believe that the Cameroon will do well in this tournament. Despite the opening win, Sinong is not getting carried away yet. He knows that there are still two important to come against Senegal and Sudan. A win against Senegal will see Amajita qualifying for the semi-finals and confirming their ticket to the FIFA Under-20 World Cup in South Korea in May. We're not here to talk about winning the tournament or qualifying for the World Cup, but our main focus is to always approach one game at a time. Like now, our entire focus will be on Senegal. We won't talk about semi-finals, we won't talk about winning the tournament because we are working with youngsters, 
and sometimes they can be inconsistent. They played very well, but we need to push them into the right performance zone just to make sure that they focus on Senegal. We try to analyze the strength and the weakness of Senegal. A 10-man Senegal held Sudan to a one-all draw in the first game with the West Africans, only finding the equalizer three minutes from full-time, with Bitvest Vets sensation Pakamani Mashambi available for that game and also captain Tetius Malepe returning from suspension. Sinong has called all the ammunition he needs to advance to the semis, but the Bafana Bafana assistant coach chooses to focus on the psychological aspects of his players. Uh, all the players that we've recruited in this squad are very level-headed and they are a group of players that are so coachable and humble. And yes, uh, we don't have any doubts, but of course, as a technical team, we just need to work on the psychology of the team just to make sure that they remain level-headed, just to make sure they remain in the performance zone. It's not easy when you are coaching this 20, 19, 18-year-olds, but it is possible if we give them feedback and then positive feedback, negative feedback, and then it will always help all these players to be in the learning zone. Because we are all here to develop players. This is a developmental tournament, and it's always uh, important that we always teach these players uh, this kind of situations. But uh, uh, I must say that we won't experience any problems with regards to the players' performance in the next match because of they will still work hard, uh, they will still concentrate, and then try to create as many chances as they can. Cameroon will next face Sudan on Thursday, and they still stand a chance to go through to the next stage, should they win the next two games. Head coach Cyprian Besong Ashu believes that his boys will bounce back. I wasn't, we, we weren't a surprise uh, of their tactics. Uh, we got a philosophy of playing, and uh, okay, it's young players, they'll make, they'll make mistakes, and uh, I think... Uh, so big goals comes from uh, from our own uh, mistakes. Uh, so uh, we'll go back to the field of play and uh, to the training ground and try to uh, improve on that. And uh, I think uh, the South African were, were a good team. Yeah, we played against a very good team. Uh, but I think most of the, the game we did control the game. And I think we could do more better. And uh, we'll go back and uh, look into that. And finally, in rugby news, Van Carter has achieved what none of his predecessors as head coach could do by steering Scotland to an all-time high, high of fifth place in the World Rugby Rankings, according to the World Rugby web, website. Following their first win over Wales since 2006, Scotland have moved above Saturday's vanquished opponents and South Africa in the rankings, which were first introduced in October 2003, after gaining 1.28 rating points. Scotland are now 82.18 points, knowing that victory over England at Twickenham in, for, in a fortnight's time would not only keep their Six Nations title bid on track, but also make them fam fav- favourites to claim a top four spot by the time the Rugby World Cup 2019 pool draw takes place on May the 10th. New Zealand is sitting on 94.78, England 91.02, Australia 86.35, Ireland 84.18, Scotland 82.18, and South Africa occupying sixth position 81.79. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. More sports news in the next hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza.
Afrika amka na unai Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, former South Africa's President Tabumbegi condemns recent attacks on foreigners. U.S. President Donald Trump prepares for his first address to Congress and concerns over humanitarian situation in the Iraqi city of Mosul. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzora Magaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. And taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Flavor with a song titled Noa Baby.